Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we thank and praise you for everything that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that you've left nothing undone. Lord, everything you've done is so complete. And we ask, Lord, that as we turn now to your word, that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Father, I just pray that you'll anoint me. Lord, that your truth will go forward. Father, I just pray that the result of tonight will be that all of us will just be strengthened in faith. Lord, that we'll be closer to you. Our Lord, without you we're helpless. Lord, just feed us now. Lord, just give us revelation from your word. Because, Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right. Well, tonight, in actual fact, we're going to start a course or a series. And the subject is salvation. Now, we're going to be doing some 20 or possibly more studies in which the idea is to attack salvation from every possible angle to find out exactly what the Bible tells us about it. Now, for instance, we'll be obviously seeing um, how salvation was accomplished on the cross by Jesus. But more than that, we'll be seeing how that salvation is worked out in our present experience. And then, and that's probably about 15 or 16 studies in itself, <laughs> then we go beyond that and to see what salvation means from the day you die onwards. So we're going to run the whole gamut, okay? We're going to, you know, sort of Genesis to Revelation, everything that the Bible teaches about mm. salvation. But tonight, we've got to start with the Bible itself. And the reason for that is that if you're going to dispense information of any kind, it's good to check and be sure of your sources. Now then, given that everything that I'm going to say about salvation comes from the Bible, then it's only good that tonight we start by having a look at our source. And so that's what we're going to do, a Bible study on the subject of the Bible being God's Word. Um, I'm going to throw out general pieces of information for a moment or two. First of all, the word the Bible, where does it come from? It comes from the Greek, tad biblia, all right? And tad biblia is plural and it means the books. Not the book, but the books. It's plural. And that's as it should be because the Bible is in fact a library. A library consisting of 66 books. Now, some of what I share tonight is going to be quite profound. But let's get the trivia out of the way. I like trivia. It's all the rage today. So let me give you some biblical trivia, okay, for your entertainment. Now then, this library of 66 books, for those who are interested, is divided into 1,189 chapters. Now then, in our modern translation, or for instance the King James Version, those 100, 1,189 chapters contain 773,746 words. And also, it comprises of 3,566,480 letters. All right. And this is what yeah, Phil will just check that when he gets home tonight. Anyway. The Bible is also written in three languages. 
the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, the New Testament is written primarily in Greek, and you get a smattering of Aramaic in the Old Testament. And the book as we have it today was written over a period of 1,600 years by approximately 40 authors, give or take one or two. All right, And it was written from three continents. Some of it was written in Europe, some of it was written in Asia, and some of it was written in Africa. Now then, important point this. Of these authors, all of them except one were Jews. Now this is tremendously important to realise that with the exception of Luke in his Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, which he wrote, with that exception, the Bible is a 99.9% .9 Jewish book. And that's totally important to understand if you want to get to grips with what the Bible says. And another thing that's quite interesting, all these men, as I say, most of them Jews, is that they didn't realise at the time that they were writing the Bible. They didn't know that their writings were at a later date going to be put together in what we now have as the Bible. So they didn't even know they were writing it. Now then, while we're sort of getting the odds and ends over, also we talk about the scriptures. Now where does that come from? Well, the scriptures, that phrase comes from the Greek word graphe, which simply means the writings. So the word scriptures means writings. And for instance, it's from graphe that we get our word graphology from. Now then, the Bible is divided into two parts in what are called testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, this word testament in the Greek, the Greek word for it is diatheke. And what it means is a covenant or an agreement. So what we have is an old agreement and a new agreement. But interestingly, and I want you to hold on to this for later, the Greek word diatheke, a covenant or agreement, was primarily used concerning a will when someone had died. Now, just hold on to that. That'll come in a bit later. Now, let's quickly look at the areas that the Bible covers. First of all, the Old Testament. It covers two main areas. First of all, the Old Testament gives us origins. For instance, it tells us how everything started. It gives us the origin of the universe. It gives us the origin of mankind as mankind. This thing, who am I? What am I here for? Where have I come from? The answers to that are given in the Old Testament. And also, it gives us the origin of what, in future studies, we are going to see is the problem. It gives us the origin of sin. All right, so that's the first area that the Old Testament covers. The second area it covers was the covenant or the agreement that God made with Israel to be his people. And of course, the reason that God got Israel for himself anyway was to simply have a nation who would be the means of revealing what God was like, giving us disclosures of his character, what sort of God he is, but more importantly, to reveal how salvation was going to come into the world. And of course, the main point being that Jesus himself was salvation and came from the Jewish nation. So there you have the two areas in the Old Testament. Orange origins and the covenant that God made with Israel. Now when we come into the New Testament, wouldn't surprise us to see that it covers two main areas, 
absolutely complementary to the two areas that the Old Testament covers. Because the first area is this. Since the death of Jesus, the covenant or testament or agreement that God has made is now not just with Israel, it's with everyone. It's open for all once the problem of sin was dealt with when Jesus died on the cross. And what we see also in the New Testament is the fact that the church was brought in to replace Israel. Israel failed in what she was meant to do, so God took Israel out and brought the church in to replace her. So that's the first area. The covenant now with everyone, the agreement is open to all because the problem of sin had been dealt with. And then the second, we saw that the Old Testament dealt with origins, the New Testament gives us what we need to know about endings, or what you might call the final destiny of all things, which we'll be having a look at in the course. And of course, important to say, I just said about in the New Testament, we see how Israel was kind of laid aside by God. In the whole area of everything ending, we see also how Israel in the last days is brought back in. So it's a totally happy ending all round. Now then, having said that, let's start to have a look at what the Bible says about itself, because this is important. If you find the second letter of Timothy, if you find 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Now, if I beat you to it, I'll just read it out, all right? And 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and I'm just going to read the beginning of verse 16. All right, it simply says this, All Scripture is inspired by God. Now the rest of that verse we'll be back to later, but for the time being what I want is this. All scripture is inspired by God. Now what I'm interested in is that phrase, inspired by God. And the Greek word for it is theonoustos, and it comes from two words, theos, which means God, and noustos, which means to breathe. And that what you literally have here is that it's saying that the Bible is God-breathed. The scriptures, all scriptures, are God-breathed. Okay. Now then, what's this thing about God-breathing? You know, we get the idea of inspiration from this. But the point is this. You breathe as you speak. As I speak to you, I'm breathing out. You literally breathe out what it is you're saying. Now, when we're saying that the Bible, as the scriptures are God-breathed, what we're saying is that they are God's Word, because your breath is the same as your Word. As you speak, you breathe. So we have here that the Bible itself tells us quite clearly that it is God speaking His Word, and this is what the Bible is, the Word of God. And what I want to home in on tonight is this, that because it is God's Word, we can therefore be quite, quite sure that it is true. And that's what I want to home in on tonight, that the Bible, as God's word, is true. Turn with me to the second chapter of Peter, because this emphasis in the Bible itself can't be really expressed enough. I just want to read 2 Peter and chapter 1 and just a few verses. First of all, verse 16. It's very important that you understand what the Bible's saying here. Now, this is Peter talking. Verse 16. For we did not 
follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Go down to verse 19. And we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now understand what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, I am writing to you what I have actually seen with my own eyes, heard with my own ears, and touched with my own hands. All right. He's saying that everything I am saying to you is literally true. There's no myth in it. There's nothing mystical about it. I'm simply telling you the truth as it happened. And here he talks about having a prophetic word made more sure. What's he talking about? The fact that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament about him. And so what Peter's saying, he's saying, look, this should hardly surprise us. We can look at the life of Jesus and all the Old Testament, all that it said about him, has been fulfilled to the letter. And what Peter's ramming home to them is that we're dealing here with facts. We're dealing here with historical truth. Um, go down to verse 20. He says, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, what he's saying is, look, the Scriptures were written by men who were being moved by the Spirit of God. Now that word, being moved, in the Greek is pharaoh. And what it means is to bear or to carry. Now, if I was to pick you up, alright, and carry you somewhere, you go where I take you. Can you see? The thing about being carried is it's that which is doing the carrying that decides where you're going. So if you're being carried, it's the one who's carrying who's in charge. So again, we see very, very clearly that in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit carried these men. The Holy Spirit got across exactly and precisely what he wanted. So we see there the authorship of the Bible finally is the Holy Spirit. It is God himself who has written the Bible and therefore we can 100% um, rest in knowing that it is true. And the technical terms that we put on it are that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. And what we're meaning by that is simply this. The Bible in all it affirms is completely without error completely without error and 100% totally true in all that it affirms. Now therefore, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, which believe me isn't as complicated as sometimes we're led to believe, it simply means this, that when we read the Bible, we are to interpret it in a perfectly straightforward and literal way, with two exceptions. And I'm not going to home in on this too much, all right? But the two exceptions are this. The Bible, like all literature, contains obvious picture language. But the emphasis on that is obvious picture language. And you'll find that whenever the Bible uses picture language, it always interprets it. For instance, in Daniel, you get Daniel having these visions of these weird beasts and things like that. Now, you could read that 
And if you just take the symbolism or the picture language, you could put any interpretation on it that you liked. All right? But then you'll find that at certain points in his life, angels appeared to him and told him what the pictures meant. So can you see, at all points, when you get picture language, we're not meant to take picture language in a literal way, but that is obvious. But the Bible itself tells us what the picture language means. So that's the first example. You interpret the Bible literally, except when it is using clear symbolism, in which case you interpret the symbolism in the way that the Bible interprets it. And the second exception to taking the Bible literally is when you get idiom. And again, all speech, whatever language it is, whatever culture you're in, uses idiom. And the word idiom comes from a Greek word, and it means to make one's own, or to make your own. And what you have with idiom is that you've got verbal or literary expressions which are unique to a particular people or culture, that are going to need to be explained to anyone outside of that culture. A good example in the Bible is to remember when, um, in the book of Job, when Satan goes up to heaven, and God says, sort of like, what have you been doing? Have you considered my servant Job and all that? And when God said to him, where have you been? Satan said, from walking to and fro on the earth. Now, that's an idiom in the Jewish culture. And Jews understand what it means. And the concept of walking to or fro is a concept of authority. It speaks of ownership. And so what Satan was saying, God says, where have you been? Satan says, I'm on the world because I own it. And remember, the Bible says itself that Satan is the god of this world. Um, example of modern day idiom would be this um like if you said that someone threw a wobbly now if you had an oriental gentleman who's just learned english but he's never been to england but he's learned english if i said that someone threw a wobbly he might think that someone had chucked a jelly at someone else can you see what i mean but of course we know what it means if you throw a wobbly you lose your temper it's an idiom. We know what it means, but it would need explaining to someone outside. <laughs> okay. Um, another example would be that if, if I said it's raining cats and dogs, can you see that a foreigner might be caught out by that? He would need it explained. We know what it means. It's not to be taken in a literal sense, but we know exactly what it is that that statement is expressing and therefore it's important, back to this thing, the Bible is a Jewish book, that we must get into the culture of the time and the Jews, understanding the idiom and picture language that they did use. So, having sort of covered that, I now want to cover a couple of other areas, because I'm saying that the most important thing about the Bible, if it is God's word, and it is God's word, if it is God's word, then we can expect it to be true. Now, what I want to do is give you a couple of examples purely to do with history, historical statements that the Bible make, all right? And I'm going to choose two that have given the critics over the years a lot of trouble. And that when people have wanted to say, oh, the Bible's full of mistakes, these have been two of the many examples that they've pointed to. So let's have a look at what the Bible says in a, few, a couple of historical instances. If you find Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 20. And I just want to read verse 1. Isaiah chapter 20. 
and we read this statement. <clears throat> in the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Syria, came to, came to Ashdod and fought against it and took it, at that time the Lord had spoken by Isaiah the son of Amos saying now I'm not interested in what God said through, Amos, uh, through Isaiah at the moment but what I am interested in is this Isaiah tells us about a message that God gave him to speak but he dates the message by saying it was the same time that King Sargon moved in and beat Ashdod up alright now then for many, many years, Sargon, King Sargon, was totally unknown to modern historians. There was only one book known to have ever existed that ever mentioned King Sargon, and it was the Bible. No other evidence for him was ever found, and yet the Bible spoke about King Sargon. So therefore, because King Sargon wasn't known to history, it was an example where people said, here you have the Bible making a mistake, alright? There was no character called Sargon, alright? The Bible is in error at this point. And there was no proof anywhere that this character existed. Now then, I don't know if you have ever heard of a particular Italian poet called, and I love this, a Carlo, a Giuseppe, a Guglielmo Botta. Has anyone ever heard of him? All right. He was a famous Italian poet. All right. Now then, he lived mainly in France, and his son Paul Emil Botta became the French consul over in Mosul, town of Mosul, which is in modern-day Iraq. Now he was quite interested in archaeology. Uh, we're talking about last century. And in 1842, in a place called Khorzabad, which is very near uh, to Mosul, he discovered this massive palace. He unearthed it. And in the years that followed, they kind of uncovered the whole palace, and there were loads and loads of inscriptions. All right. Now then, guess whose palace it was. It belonged to King Sargon. And this was the first evidence outside of the biblical story that had ever been found for the existence of this bloke. All right. Now then, an inscription, or there are hundreds of inscriptions in the temple, but what interests us is this one. Azurai, king of Ashdod, planned in his heart not to make tribute. In my anger, I marched against Ashdod with my usual bodyguard. I conquered Ashdod. And there we have an inscription by King Sargon describing the very thing that Isaiah tells us in the Bible. Now here's the point. For hundreds and hundreds of years, in fact for nearly, well, for 3,000 years, the Bible was the only book that contained any information about King Sargon. Because of that, the Bible was said to be historically inaccurate and that this was an example of it. Then, only 150 years ago, everything we needed to know about King Sargon was discovered. And what the Bible tells us was absolutely true. So again, when the Bible makes historical statements, we should expect that they would be true. And wherever history can verify 
what the Bible says, we always find that the Bible is true. Now turn to Daniel 5, Daniel chapter 5, and I'll give you another historical example of this. Because these were big kind of, these were kind of big deals amongst the critics who were sort of trying to show that the Bible was full of errors. All right. Now then, in Daniel chapter 5, we have an account of the fall of Babylon to Medo-Persia. Now, this is well known in history, all right? The historians are perfectly au fait with all this. But the problem is this, that Daniel tells us that when when Babylon fell to Medo-Persia, that the reigning king was called Belshazzar. Now, the problem it caused was this. Historians knew that the last king of Babylon was called Nabonidas. And this was the problem. Historians knew that the last king in Babylon was called Nabonidas. The Bible says that the last king in Babylon when it fell was called Belshazzar. All right. So again, we have another example that the Bible was said to be wrong. Okay. Now then, our whole point is this. In 1853, an inscription was found in one of Nabonidas's temple, all right? Remember, the historians were saying Nabonidas was the last king in Babylon, all right? The Bible says that Belshazzar was, but historians didn't know anything about Belshazzar at all, never heard of him, and said the Bible was wrong. Now, listen to this inscription written by Nabonidas. May I, Nabonidas... King of Babylon, and this was an inscription erected to a god that he worshipped. And he says, May I, Nabonidas, king of Babylon, not sin against thee, and may reverence for thee dwell in the heart of Belshazzar, my firstborn and favourite son. Further inscriptions went on to tell the story that Nabonidas, for most of his life, lived outside of Babylon in retirement, leaving Nabonidas, his eldest and favourite son, to rule and be his co-regent. So whereas Nabonidas was technically the king, Belshazzar was actually the king and co-regent and acting king in the absence of his father, who presumably had better things to do than rule a kingdom. He was, you know, in retirement somewhere. Who can blame him? But the point is this, that again we see that where history is able to verify something that the Bible says, again this was used against the Bible, that this was just a mistake in the Bible. There you have it. And yet, history as we learn more and more about history it's an example of just how accurate the Bible was on points of information that no one else knew about at all now then also having said that while you've got your Bibles open at Daniel 5 just look at verse 16 and then verse 29 and in verse 16 the king says um, to Daniel about if he can interpret etc etc And he says, uh, if you can, you shall have a chain of gold about your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now go down to verse 29, all right? And it says, Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put about his neck, proclamation was made concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now the problem was this, if there was one king in Babylon, how could he, being second to the king, be the third ruler? 
the answer there were two kings Nabonidus outside of Babylon and his son reigning as co-regent in Babylon and there we have an example that modern history or uh, sort of discovering the palace has thrown light on a, a little verse that that seemed a bit odd we had to wait for history to show us that there were two kings and old Nabonidus was outside and Belshazzar was simply his co-regent now then we'll finish with the historical aspect there and I want to move on now to the scientific and what I want to say about the scientific is this the Bible is not a science textbook it's not meant to be a science textbook it was never meant to be a science textbook but the point is this because God knows everything as he communicates what he communicates in the Bible everything he says is going to be true so therefore when the Bible makes a scientific comment of any time whereas the Bible is not there to teach us science we can be sure that when the Bible says something as it were in the name of science that it is going to be scientifically true let me give you some examples go back to Isaiah you'll see what I mean in a moment find Isaiah chapter 40 and I just want to read verse 22 Isaiah 40 verse 22 and we have this statement it is he I God it is he who sits above the circle of the earth now what I want to raise is this Isaiah knew that the world was round and not flat do you see the point here we have a statement in the Bible that the world is not flat at all but the world is round now then we know that the world is round it has been verified by science it's a sphere and that word kug in Hebrew for circle it means a sphere it means a circle that's what it means so here we have a statement in the Bible that the earth is spherical which is exactly what modern science has shown us it is Columbus could have saved a lot of time then. <laughs> oh yeah of course if he'd read his Bible and accepted yeah that's right um, go to the book of Job and what's so fascinating about the ones I'm going to show you now is that the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible it was probably the first ever book written alright in the scriptures so then with the book of Job we really are you know sort of way back in history now then find chapter 26 chapter 26 verse 7 now let me tell you that throughout history various cultures have had various theories to explain what it is that's holding the world up alright uh, from an atlas figure and I believe in India it was elephants you know that the world was on the back um, and that when you've got an earthquake is because the elephant sneezed, you see. But the point is that throughout history, before the age of modern science, various cultures obviously came up with various theories about what it is that holds the world up. Now then, in Job 26, verse 7, we read this. He, that is God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth upon nothing. <laughs> now, can you see that? we have a statement here that the earth hangs upon nothing or there's nothing holding it up it's there in space there's nothing underneath it holding it up 
Now, I'm not saying that Job realised the implications of this. I'm not saying at all. But what I am saying is that when God imparts knowledge, he imparts true and actual knowledge, even though the person receiving that knowledge may not understand the implications of it. Uh, move up into chapter 28, the next chapter, and verse 25. Again, speaking about God, it says this, When he gave to the wind its weight, and meted out the waters by measure. But notice that, when he gave the wind its weight. Now, how did someone, all these thousands of years ago, know that the air has weight? And air does weigh something. It's not very heavy, but it has weight. But my goodness, the very precise instruments you need to measure it. And yet here we have the oldest book in the Bible saying that God meted out weight to the wind or to the air. You see, it's there. No problem. Still in Job, go through to chapter 38. Job chapter 38. And find verse 31. Now, yesterday morning, I, I actually got onto the phone to the Royal Greenwich Observatory, all right, about this one, and I got what I wanted to know, all right? Now then, let's, let's just read it. This is God speaking to Job, and he says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? All right. Now then, the Pleiades, as you know, the Seven Sisters, all right, and Orion, the Mighty Hunter. Now then, in the constellations of these star systems, you get two types. You get what are called bound systems, and you get what are called unbound systems. Now, a bound system, remember that these stars are millions and millions and millions of miles away from each other, but we look at them in the sky, and they form a pattern. But in a bound system, even though they're millions of years away, the mutual gravitational pull is sufficient to keep them in that position as a group of stars for a very, 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 very long time. That to all intents and purposes, from the Earth, no matter how much time goes past, you'll always be able to look at a bound system and it will always look the same because the stars are holding themselves together. However, with an unbound system, what it means is this, that the gravitational forces between the stars themselves are overridden by outside forces, which means that the stars are drifting apart. And give it enough time, and those star systems, when you look, there'll be a totally different shape because they're moving away from each other. Can you see what I'm getting at? So you get a bound system, which means that that star system will always look the same as you gaze at it from Earth or any angle in space, all right? Whereas an unbound system, give it enough time and it will disperse and it won't be there anymore as that particular shape. Now then, what we have is this. God says, can you bind the chain of the Pleiades, all right? Now the Pleiades is a bound system in space and any astronomer will tell you that. And here we have God speaking to Job, saying, can you bind the cords of Pleiades? Can you see what God is saying here? He's saying that from the earth, Pleiades will always be there, it will never change, it's bound, alright? But Orion is an unbound system. Give it enough time and you won't be able to see Orion anymore because the stars will have dispersed and they'll have changed where they are in space. Now can you see exactly what we're dealing with in a verse like this? God himself is telling Job that he's bound the Pleiades in the sky, but he's loosed Orion. And in the oldest book of the Bible. 
And in regards to the Pleiades, Fred Hoyle, celebrated, you know, sort of um, originator of the now debunked steady state theory, said this, that the Pleiades will be there in a thousand million years' time. All right. And what I'm just saying to you is, is general knowledge amongst all astronomers. Now, can you see, the point is that here we have a scientific statement in the Bible which only modern astronomy has been able to affirm. And yet when the Bible says something, can you see, even if it's touching on science, it is going to be scientifically true even though the Bible is not written as a scientific textbook. Can you see what I'm getting at? Go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. One nine, Psalm 19, and I'll start reading from verse 1. There's six verses that I'm interested in here. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And what the psalmist is saying here is that, is that nature, creation itself, is preaching the existence of God. That's what it's saying. But listen to this. In them, he, i.e. God, in them, and we're talking about um, sort of the heavens and the firmament, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Now listen to this. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hid from its heat. Now here we have a psalm telling us that the, that the sun is moving through space on a predetermined and fixed course. Can you see that? He's not just talking about it going round the earth, all right, because most ancient people didn't even know that. Some had a pretty good idea, but he's not just about spinning round the earth. He's talking about it moving through the firmament, through the heavens. Its circuit is to the end of them. And of course the sun is moving through space in on an incredible predetermined orbit, as indeed we are as we go around the sun. And everything in space is moving in very complex orbits. But my goodness, how did he know? How did he know? He knew simply because God had passed this information on to him. He probably didn't understand its astronomical implications. But can you see, when God communicates at any point, if he touches history, then the history is correct. It's true. If he touches science, then the science is perfectly correct. The science is perfectly true. Now then, so what we have is this. Because God knows everything, that knowledge is obviously, to a certain extent, <coughs> going to be passed on in all he says or does. Hence we have ancient men who wrote the scriptures in the possession of really quite profound scientific knowledge. Now then, having said what I've said, can you now see that when the Bible tells us that the whole universe came into being in a space of six 24-hour days, just over 6,000 years ago, can you see there is no problem with that? <laughs> what, what problem is there? Now, I grant you, if at any point modern science or historians had ever proved the Bible to be wrong in any of its statements, that would be different. If modern science had proven 
that the universe didn't come into existence in six days, six thousand years ago, then I grant you that would be different. But the point is, it hasn't. It hasn't. It obviously never will, because what the Bible says is true. But the point is, people think that modern science and modern history has proved the Bible wrong. This isn't true in any way at all. And if I've shown you the accuracy when God makes statements about astronomy, then can you see that what the Bible says about the sixth day, you know, zap, and there it all was, can you see that it is perfectly scientific? You don't have to commit intellectual suicide in any way at all to accept what the Bible says in everything that it says. All right. But let's move away from that. Because I've shown you the truth of the Bible. I've shown you that we can trust it. Okay. Now, our concern with the Bible isn't so much to get scientific data. I mean, one of Fred Hoyle's textbooks would do that for you better. Because the Bible isn't a scientific textbook. But I've just shown you it's true in all the statements it makes. However, the main point of the Bible, and what we need the Bible for, is to reveal salvation which is the topic of the series that we're entering on. The Bible was given to reveal salvation through Jesus. It's there to give us the information we need about salvation and what that means. Or to give it its theological term, the Bible is soteriological. All right, soteriology is that which pertains to salvation. And that is the point of the Bible. That's really why God has given it to us. Now, let's go back to what I said about the Greek word that means a testament, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right, diatheke. It means an agreement, a covenant, but it was used primarily regarding a will. Now, in its simplest terms, and I'm going to try and now pack a sort of 22 odd week course into one paragraph, all right, but what you've got with salvation is this, and this is what we're going to look at in a greatly expanded form. The whole point is this. Jesus died and answered the problem of sin. But when he died, he left a will. And in his will, he left everything he was and everything he has. And that will is for anyone who wants to claim what he left in the will. His will has been left to everyone when he died. And in the will is everything that Jesus was, everything he is, everything he had. So then, that really is what salvation is. And the Christian life is simply entering into the fullness of what Jesus left you when he died in his will. Can you see what I'm saying? The beautiful thing is that because he rose again from the dead, he's actually there to help you get what he left you when he died. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to be the executor of that will. Now, the executor of a will is the one who is there to make sure that those who have been left something get what they have been left, all right? And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to execute or be the executor of Jesus' will to make sure that we come into everything that Jesus left us in his will when he died on the cross. And for a large part, the Holy Spirit enables us to come into what we're due in the will of Jesus by showing us through the scriptures what exactly it is we're entitled to. Because if you've been named in a will, you can only get it when you know what you have been left. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and this is why we have the scripture. 
it's Jesus's will it's what is there for you and I to claim for the Holy Spirit to make our own and bring only as we understand what Jesus has left us in his will that we can come into the fullness of it and that is why we have been given the Bible all right so the Bible is about salvation and salvation is simply receiving in experience what Jesus left you in his will when he died on the cross now that is what salvation is now having said that turn back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 we looked at the first part of this verse 2 Timothy chapter 3 and we want verse 16 and you'll remember that we saw it began that all scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. It's God's word. Theonustos. All right. But look what it's for. He says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, which means useful of assistance. Now, I've said that the Holy Spirit's ministry as the executor of Jesus' estate is to make sure that you come into everything that Jesus has left you, alright? But the purpose of the Bible is to assist you as you claim that will. Can you see what I mean? The Bible is there to show you what it is that is there for you and how it is that you come into it. So we see that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Now just notice as well at this point it says all scripture. I want to emphasize this because some people they have their favorite bits of the Bible and they stick to them. That is disastrous. The only way we can ever come into a full knowledge of what God has for us is to realize that it's not just that the Bible is God's word, but all of the Bible is God's word, and all of the Bible is equally God's word. And if you go missing bits out, like I've known Christians who aren't interested in the Old Testament, and there are Bible teachers, you'll never hear them talk about the Old Testament because they're into the New Testament. As if somehow the New Testament is opposed to the Old Testament. I tell you, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You'll never do it. So therefore, all Scripture is inspired by God. And we must make sure that we don't get bitty about the Bible. And a lot of people are very picky. They like this thing that the Bible says, but they're not too keen on that thing that the Bible says. Now, we're seeing here that all Scripture, the Bible from start to finish, is true and it is God's word but all of it from start to finish is equally true and God's word can you see what I'm saying it's all scripture that we need okay so it's profitable but here Paul tells us exactly what it's profitable for and this is the way in which the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to help us to come into our inheritance i.e. everything that Jesus left us in his will when he died and we're going to see that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, I want to look at each of those. All right. Now, first of all, it's profitable for teaching. Now, the Greek word here is didaskalia, all right, from where you get the word didactic. Didactic, all right. But what it specifically means, it's not here just talking about theory at all. In the Greek this is a kind of an active word and as you read through the Bible 
you begin to see that the picture that the Jews and the early church had of doctrine or teaching was not that it was theoretical, but that you received teaching only to the extent that you were putting that teaching into practice. So here, in the Greek, didaskalia, the emphasis is not on the teaching you receive, the emphasis is on the teaching that you're doing or putting into practice. Let me just um, show you this in the scriptures. You remember in James, James 1.22, and what he says is, Be not hearers of the word, only, but doers of the word. That's the emphasis in the New Testament. Now turn to Titus, just after Timothy, and I want you to see a couple of things that Paul wrote to this church leader. And it shows us how the apostles understood teaching or doctrine. All right. Now then, first of all, let's read uh, chapter 2 and the first two verses. Now then, verse 1. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Now that word doctrine did escape it, right? The same as the word we've looked at here. Now then, given that that's verse 1, we would expect verse 2 to be Paul going on and telling him what doctrines he's got to keep teaching, i.e. the second coming and the atonement and the baptism in the Spirit. But, see what he actually says. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Bid the older men be temperate, serious, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Bid the older women likewise be reverent in behaviour, not slanderous. Can you see, it's not theory, it's the theory put into practice. And the biblical concept of teaching is not theory as opposed to practice. Teaching only becomes teaching when it is becoming your experience. Can you see what I mean? Like, for instance, I mean, you come here and you get teaching from the Word of God. If you leave here and carry on as you were before you came, and not putting that teaching into practice, then biblically you haven't been taught. You've been informed, but you haven't been taught. You're only receiving teaching as you go away putting into practice what you've learned from the Word of God. So there, uh, go down into chapter 9 again, alright? Um, Sorry, into verse 9. Now, just look at the end of verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Alright. Now what Paul's saying here, that doctrine is only any good if you adorn it, i.e. if you put clothes on it, i.e. if you live it out. Now then, given that he ends up, verse 10, talking about doctrine, look at verse 9. Bid slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction. Um... They're not to pilfer, but to show entire and true fidelity, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God the Saviour. Can you see that in the Bible, teaching and doctrine is practice? Not just theory as opposed to practice, it is the practicing of what you've been taught. So that's the first thing. The Bible tells you what to put into practice. Not just nice theories. Not just nice doctrines, but that which we're expected to put into practice, even as we receive it. Now then, secondly, uh, for reproof. Now then, the Greek word for reproof is elegmos, alright? And it means to tell you off. <coughs> it's a distinct smack on the wrist job, alright? And that this is the job of the Bible. It is there to rebuke you. It is there to tell you off. Alright? So, part of what we need if we're to 
experience the whole of what salvation means is that we need to know what we're doing wrong the things in us that are preventing us from getting the inheritance that Jesus left for us when he died on the cross in his will alright we've got to know what we're doing wrong that's preventing us from coming into that and the Bible is there to reprove you to rebuke you to say that is wrong naughty naughty Alright, now then, let's just have a look at the actual English word that they've used for elegmos, alright, elegmos in the Greek, but the English word is reproof. Now then, this doesn't tie in with the Greek, but in English, the word reproof can mean something other than to simply rebuke or to tell you off. Now then, what I say to you is this, that when you sin and get out of fellowship with God, alright, your salvation starts to leak all the benefits of your salvation start to dribble out the old, alright? You lose your peace, etc, etc, you're out of fellowship with God. Now to reproof means this, if you've got a raincoat that has got leaky, if you reproof it, it becomes watertight again. Can you see what I mean? And the Bible is there to show you where you're out of fellowship with God and therefore leaking. And all the benefits of your salvation, not eternal salvation, you can't lose your salvation, as you'll see. But the point is, all the benefits of being in fellowship with God are kind of trickling out the old, alright, and you need reproofing. And once you've got right with God, your faith is watertight again and Satan can't attack. Can you see that? So then, we've got there that the Bible is there to rebuke you, to tell you off. Now then, also for correction for correction. Alright. Now, we might think that rebuke and correction are the same thing, and possibly in English they are, but not in the Greek. Because the word in the Greek, epanorthosis, which is, is translated here, correction, it means to make straight or to restore to the correct state. Alright? So, to make straight or to restore to a correct state state all right so that if you've sort of got a kind of a building that's wonky to bring it back to straight all right or if you're going off course to bring you back on course that is epinothosis that is correction in the biblical sense and of course the point is this elegmos or reproof tells you off so the bible in its role as reprover elegmos will tell you what you're doing wrong but the beautiful thing is the bible then will go on and give you epinorthosis or correction and show you not just what you're doing wrong but how to do it right can you see the thing it's not a negative thing the bible doesn't leave you dangling in midair now i've had experience of christians as probably you have where they're very very quick on elegmos they'll rebuke you no trouble at all they'll tell you where you're wrong but they will then not go on to epinothosis. They won't tell you how to do it right. They just tell you you're wrong, and you're left there dangling in condemnation. Well, the Bible's not like that. It tells you what's wrong, but it then tells you how to put it right. So can you see finally it's a positive thing, all right? You're not left dangling over the pit by the Bible. If it tells you something is wrong, it'll tell you how to put it right. Can you see? It's nothing negative in it whatsoever. It's all a positive sort of conclusion. And then finally, it's there for training in righteousness. Um, or instruction, I think it is in, um, uh, in some translations. And that word is paideia. And what it means is child training. 
It literally means child training. You can translate that word quite happily as nurture. And in fact, some translations do translate it as nurture. Uh, for instance, if we turn to Ephesians 6, 4, chapter 6, verse 4. Remember, I'm saying that it's child training. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, we have this. Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that word discipline there is paideia. It means child training. And some translations say bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And that's what it means. And in Hebrews 12, we won't actually turn to it, but you get the grand chapter about whom the Lord loves, he chastens. About how God will sort us out. How the afflictions that we go through are God dealing with us because we're his children. And throughout that you get exactly the same word, paideia, child training. So again, the Holy Spirit through the Bible is implementing all these different areas of the Bible's usefulness to us. But can you see the importance of understanding what the Bible says, getting into the Bible? Let's face it, if... If um, a solicitor's letter dropped through your door in the morning telling you that sort of some, someone had died and left you loads of money in their will, I'll bet you'd read the small print. You'd be right, you'd want to know exactly what you have to do to get the money and where the reading of the will's going to be. Are there any sort of, you know, certain full, um, sort of things that I've got to fulfil first? You'd be right in there. Now, it's exactly the same with the Bible. You've got to study the small print. You've got to understand fully everything that it's saying. So, let me start to end up. And I'll end up by saying this. How is it that we obey the Bible? And how do we grow in our understanding of the Bible? Remember I've said that the Bible knows nothing of simply head knowledge. The Bible knows nothing of simply theory apart from practice. And we're going to see a principle that's built into the Bible, and it's this. If you are living in obedience and faithfulness to what you do understand of Bible teaching, then the Holy Spirit will enable you to grow into a deeper understanding and experience of what the Bible teaches. Can you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you're faithful to what little you do know, then your knowledge and revelation and experience of Jesus will grow. But if you're not faithful to what you understand, what little maybe you understand of the Bible, then you won't grow closer to the Lord at all. And it would just be self-deception uh, to think that you would. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 12. And I just want to show you a few verses that show us this very, very clearly so that you get the principle. And it's like as we go through this course, as I show you all the benefits that are yours because Jesus died for you. Everything that's there waiting for you to experience, all right? The point is, unless you're obedient to what you know of the Bible, you're never coming to that inheritance. Now, Romans 12, start at verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there you have it. That's commitment. It's dedication. Can you see that surrender to God and his will? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your <coughs> spiritual worship. 
do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind now listen to this that that which means when you've done what he's just said then that you may prove what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect if you're to prove and experience the will of God in your life it's got to be because of that surrender to God that being faithful to what you have understood of the Lord's requirements for you thus far go to John 8 and have a look at something that Jesus said and before I actually read this I want to just ask you to relate this and, and ask if there's a connection between this verse and what I'm telling you and the woeful ignorance amongst Christians of what salvation is. Most Christians are practically ignorant of the Bible. I mean, if you ask them to give a defence for their faith, they wouldn't be able to. Now listen to this, what Jesus said. John 8 verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, now this is Jesus talking to Christians, if you continue in my word, you are truly my consigned truly my disciples all right the continue the doing his word and look and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free all right now can you see that the knowledge of the truth is only going to set you free it's only going to bring you into the benefits of salvation to the extent that you are continuing in Jesus's word can you see that principle there and elsewhere, Jesus said, also in John's Gospel, I think, he says that he that doeth the will of God shall know of the doctrine. It's always that willingness to do God's will which precedes receiving understanding from God and greater insight and experience of what salvation is. Go to Philippians chapter 3 and just see how Paul states this principle totally blatantly. Philippians chapter 3 and I'm going to read from verse 13, all right? And we're going to note the context that Paul's talking about. He says, Brethren, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind <coughs> and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the context is Paul says, I want more and more to come into this experience of what Jesus has left. That's the context. Moving on in God. All right, to quote a cliche. That's the context of what Paul is, is saying here. Now, look what he says. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if, anything, and if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Now listen to this, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Can you see that? Paul's saying it doesn't matter how much or how little you know now. It doesn't matter how close you are to Jesus or how mature you are in the faith now. The point is that if you're going to grow, if you're going to get deeper with God than you are already, then the principle is that you've got to be living faithfully to what God has already done in you. Can you see what I mean? You can't be faithful to that which God hasn't done in you. But you've got to be being faithful to that which God has revealed to you thus far. Then you will move deeper with God. So remember, in absolutely everything, as you get into the Bible, what we're saying is this. The Bible is right and you are wrong. 
Now that's offensive to some people. Usually when it's not offensive to them, it's because they haven't understood it. So let me outline to you. It means that when your cherished beliefs, even those that you may have formed since you were a Christian, sometimes your favourite doctrines, you've got to be willing to repent of them. And this is offensive to people because you've got to all the time be realising that where you disagree with the Bible, then you are wrong. And there is no question, there is no argument whatsoever. If the Bible says it, it's right. And it's the final and it's the only authority. And let me say this as well. If you realise that a belief you've held, whether it be a belief you had before you were converted, or right, like for instance, I'm mean, going to be dead against, for instance, um, hanging, you know, for murder. I used to be dead against that. Whether it's that sort, or whether it's a false doctrine that you've picked up since you got converted, and you realise that what you're believing may sound good, but it ain't what the Bible says. Then let me say, your responsibility is to submit to what the Bible says, renounce anything you discover that you're holding doctrinally that isn't from the Bible, and it doesn't matter how much God has used that man who wrote the book that gave you that wrong doctrine in the first place. Can you see what I'm saying? The final authority is the Bible and the Bible only. And everything that you hold dear, all your beliefs, have got to be being continuously weighed against the Bible. So when you discover that the Bible disagrees with you, you're wrong and you have got to change your mind, i.e. you've got to repent. Now, most people think that if you've had an affair with the, you know, with the organist's wife, then you've got to repent. Um, or if you do a bank job, then you've got to repent. Or if you lose your temper with the preacher and swear at him in the middle of service, then you've got to repent. And they associate repentance with these kind of, you know, that area of life. Now, of course, repentance applies there. But the point is, quite equally, you've got to repent of wrong beliefs you've had. And the reason is this. Most Christians don't understand what repentance means. The word repent in Greek is metanoia, and it literally means to perceive afterwards. To perceive afterwards, that is the literal meaning of that Greek word. And what it means is to change your mind after a fresh realisation or a fresh insight. The point is you realise that you were wrong, and because you realise that you're wrong, you change your mind. Alright? I mean, for instance, say, I mean, I've, I've talked about hanging. You might be a right old social reformer who thinks it's absolutely horrendous that anyone could consider that convicted murderers be hung, all right? Well, the point is you've got to repent of that. You've got to change your mind because you're wrong if you think that because the Bible says otherwise. Can you see what I mean? And you've got to repent of it. You've got to change your mind. Realise that for whatever reason you were believing that, the Bible says to the contrary, so you've got new data now, you've got what the Bible says, and having received that, realise you're wrong and change your mind. That's what repentance is. Now then, the Bible, what we think is not half as important as we think. Do you know what I mean? We're very full of what we think. I mean, think how many sermons you've heard, how much teaching, where constantly throughout you've got, well, I think. And the bloke saying, oh, I think. Well, I mean, what Bible teachers think is, is really neither here nor there. What's on our mind doesn't matter. In the Bible, we have the mind of Jesus. And in, um, in the Corinthian epistle, Paul actually says that we have the mind of Christ. So the point is that when you realise that Jesus' mind on something is different from yours, you've got to change your mind. All right. 
Now, that is what repentance is. At the same time, in order to repent truly and properly, you've also got to confess that it was wrong. And the Greek word for confess, and we'll be going into this a lot deeply later on in the course, the Greek word is homologio, and it simply means to say the same as. Homo the same, logio to speak. means to speak the same thing. Which simply means at every point, when you realise that you've been wrong and the Bible has contradicted you, whether it's an action you've done or whether it's a belief that you've held, the point is this. You've got to agree with God. You've got to say the same thing as God. You've got to say, Lord, what you say in your word is right. What I was saying is wrong and I admit it. Don't worry about sorrow or anything like that. It's an act of the will. But simply being in agreement with God. And you can sum up the idea of repentance and confession simply that you agree with God and you say it the way God is saying it. You see it the way that God sees it. No excuses, no self-justification. Um, you simply see it the way that God sees it. Now then, let's just finish and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And just look at 1 Corinthians 4. And this sums up what I've said. This is our guideline. Accept this and grow, ignore it, and you're wasting your time. You'll get to heaven, but you won't get to heaven on a little bit of heaven. You're just living the flesh, all right? Now then, listen to what Paul says here. And I love this verse, because this is what it is all about. He's been talking about, you know, sort of various things, and he says, I have applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So there's Paul. Paul doesn't just teach what it. Verse? This is verse 4. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Uh, sorry, verse 6. six. He says, I have applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So Paul's not just preaching something he doesn't live. He lives it as well. However failingly, and Paul admitted that he lived what he preached failingly. But the point is, he is to whatever extent he is able living what he's teaching. He says that you may learn by us to live according to Scripture. And if you want a directional phrase for the living of the Christian life, hang that on the end of your bed, that you might live according to Scripture. Because if you do, you'll never go wrong. If you don't, you'll never go right. Can you see that? That you may live according to Scripture. And then see what he says, and I love this. He says that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. Now, he starts talking about favouritism. Favoritism. And favoritism is when your judgment on the matter depends upon the personnel involved. It's deciding on the right course of action on the basis of personalities and what people think. Now, can you see how dreadful that is? You've got to settle this. If you live under the authority of Scripture, there's a rub to it, but also there's a release in it. The rub to it is this, you're answerable, you're accountable to the scripture, you've got to do what it says. Alright, okay, so there's the rub. But the release is this, knowing that you're doing what the Bible says means that you have the smile of God. That's the release. And if you have the smile of God, you're released from worrying about what so-and-so thinks what so-and-so will say. Can you see what a release? Because you're accountable to God in the scripture, and there's the rub, the point is you're free from having to crawl to men 
and there's the release of it okay so that's very very important so if you live under the scripture it's freedom but if you don't if you get you know if you live independence on what so and so thinks can you see then you're not free you're not going to decide what to do on the basis of God's final authority you're all the time going to be deciding what to do on the basis of which action will please most people which action is less likely to split my church which action is less likely to upset my can you see what I mean and that is total bondage it's only living totally in submission to the scripture that you're free to live in obedience to God you are therefore free from the power of men but also as well because you live in submission purely to what the Bible says it means that what you do in other people's lives will be more beneficial to them you'll be implementing the principles of the Bible can you see what I mean and therefore you can be sure that everything you're doing is what God wants rather than simply having all what do I think will be best and I mean in counselling the number of Christians who in seeking to counsel people screw them up rotten because they pass on all their false doctrines all their wrong emphases all their condemnation can you see what I'm saying whereas pass on what the Bible says and not only will you be free but you will set everyone else free as well so there you have it live according to scripture so we've checked our source i think it checks out a-okay and then next time we actually begin to look at the whole area of salvation Thank you.